Either that wallpaper goes, or I do, were the final words of Oscar Wilde in 1900 when he passed away in the Left Bank Hotel. And before his death, he was rather positive until the end when he compared his well-being to the wallpaper in his room that he seemed to hate. But after his death, that wallpaper was taken down and the room was designed to look like one of the rooms in Oscar's London flat where he lived. Now, dying words are very significant, especially when spoken in times of trials, of persecution, or great suffering. They often reveal a person's values and character. For the English martyrs, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were two men who were burned at the stake. For Latimer called out as the flames were lit to Ridley. He said, be of good comfort, brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust never shall be put out. And as the fire was kindled, Ridley cried out. He said, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. And he repeated this phrase over and over again. Latimer cried out, Father of heaven, receive my soul. So have you ever thought what your Lord, your last words might be here on earth? Will your thoughts be of Jesus and the gospel? Of all the, all the, possibly of all the worldly things that you may have missed out on? For Jesus here in our text today shows us that he is the ultimate example of dying well. And in our passage today when we observe the final words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Jesus' final cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So with these words, Jesus breathed his last. He died. Now normally when a person dies, you need to bend down close to them and listen carefully as they are barely able to whisper their final words. But not so with Jesus. He cried out his final words with a loud voice. You see, his enemies had accused him of calling God his father, thus making him equal with God. They mocked him on the cross and said that God no longer delighted in him. But Jesus here shows us that God was still his father and that he trusted the father to receive his spirit. We see Jesus dying even as he lived in complete and utter dependence on the Father. He was submissive to his will. With these final words, Jesus shows us his contentment, which is the title of my message today, a word of contentment. And my statement simply is, as Jesus hung on the cross, his final words were of contentment as he entrusted his spirit into the hands of his loving Father. So we can see now today these words are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And from our studies, we know that Luke was a very 
meticulous historian giving very specific details that help us identify the historical context of the events that occurred. His knowledge of these events came from the reports of those who were eyewitnesses. And in Luke, we see in the final four chapters, he records Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from Palm Sunday, which we're celebrating today, uh, where we observe that Jesus' triumphal entry, entry into Jerusalem until Good Friday, where now we observe that Jesus is hanging on the cross. And Luke's description of these events at Calvary, the day that Christ died, it is topical. It is not chronological. We get the entire picture as we examine the death of Christ in all four Gospels together. Now, there were six miracles at Calvary on that day. And we can see in our passage that the first two are mentioned in verses 44 and 45, where there was a miraculous darkness that came over the land for the three hours, and that the thick curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, like gigantic hands that took hold of it at the top and ripped it apart. Now, the very fact that darkness is mentioned shows us that it must have been of a great intensity and an unforgettable experience. And notice that it occurred at the least expected time, at high noon, and it lasted for at least three hours, so not just for a few minutes, like a typical eclipse. For John MacArthur comments, and he says, this was no ordinary darkness, it was a supernatural darkness. It could not have been caused by an eclipse, because the Jews used a lunar calendar, and the Passover always fell on the full moon. It was not late afternoon, as the sun would normally go down quietly, but it was a frightful darkness that suddenly dropped like a thick curtain. It was an extensive, concentrated darkness that were like the three days of darkness in Egypt during the plagues. Like this event, there can only be one explanation. It was God. It was a special act of God. It was like God put his hand over the sun and blocked the light for three hours. Now, what did the darkness signify? Well, we know that the darkness signified the judgment of God upon our sin. However, the punishment was borne by Jesus. He is our substitute. He suffered the most intense agony, the most indescribable pain and terrible isolation for our sins. He, hell came to Calvary on that day, and Jesus, our Savior, descended into it. He died for you and me that day. And the second miracle that we observe is that the veil of the temple was torn in two. For the moment Jesus died, that thick one-inch woven loose hanging curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies into two rooms was sliced into two from top to bottom. As I said, it was like a giant hand that took hold of it at the top of the veil and ripped it apart from top to bottom. And the Gospel of Matthew 
records it like this, that the moment that Christ died, he says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And this we find in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 to 53. But yeah, we see Luke just simply says, the veil of the temple was torn in two. You see, God the Father acted. God tore the veil so that through the death of Christ, the way into the heavenly sanctuary is opened for all mankind, is open for you and for me. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, states it like this. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So now we too can experience this intimate love relationship with God through Jesus Christ because of his sacrificial death had opened a way for every believer to enter the holiest of holiest through the veil of his flesh. So let's just examine our verse in a bit more detail today. The final words of Christ in verse 46. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. So the words here are used are a quotation of Psalm 31 verses 5 where David expresses his trust in God. So can I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 31 and let's go read David's Psalm verses 1 to 5. So Psalm 31 verses 1 to 5 and this is a Psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for you, for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Now take note, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So these were the words of David. But if you examine both the words side by side, you'll notice that Jesus makes two particular changes. He adds the word Father. And he excludes the phrase, You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. You see, Jesus knew God intimately as Father, the way that even David could not. And unlike David, Jesus did not need to be redeemed or ransomed since Jesus had no sin. But even though Jesus prayed this psalm uniquely 
as the Son of God, we can learn from this example to trust in God each and every day. So let us have a look at my first point, which is intimacy with God the Father. So by addressing God as his Father, Jesus speaks to God with intimacy. Jesus is back in communion with the Father. His time of separation that was expressed in his fourth word is now in the past. So he prays to the Father as he has done throughout his ministry. And we notice that three of Jesus' final seven sayings that came from the cross were prayers. In the first and the last, Jesus addressed God as Father. And it was only in the second prayer, as he was bearing our sin, that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For during that horrible time, God the Father turned his back on God the Son as he bore our sins. For Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The fact that just before he died, Jesus again comes back to a more intimate address, an address of Father, shows us that the agony of the cross was over. Jesus had drunk the cup of God's wrath against sin. We see God was appeased, and our fellowship with him has been restored for eternity, never to be broken again. And we know that the Gospels give us a clear demonstration of how important the relationship was between Jesus the Son and God his Father. For in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of the Father no fewer than 17 times. In his final conversations with his disciples in John chapter 14 to chapter 16, the word Father is found 45 times. And in John 17, which contains Christ's great high priestly prayer, he speaks about the Father six more times. Now, for one last time, before he lays his life down, he says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. How amazing is it to think, to know that Jesus' Father is our Father as well. Ours as well, simply because of Jesus. How wonderful is it to be able to look up to the heavens towards our great and high living God and say, Father, my Father. Notice how much comfort there is in saying, Abba, Father. What assurance it offers to say, God is my Father and that He loves me as He loved Christ, His Son. To be able to say, God is my Father and that He cares for me, that He will supply all my needs, which Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verses 19. So by calling God his Father, Jesus gives us an example of how we are to trust God as our, living, as our loving Father, even when we face the most difficult trials or the most unimaginable pain. For J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, he writes this, he says, If you want to judge how well a person 
understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook in life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. But what does the word father imply? Well, he gives us four implications. First, it implies authority. For the father commands and the son obeys. We see that Jesus came to do the will of the father. Secondly, it implies affection. For the father loves the son and the son abides in the father's love. Thirdly, it implies fellowship where Jesus was not alone because the Father was with him. And fourth, we see it implies honor, where the Father willed to honor the Son. And of course, this all applies to us as well, as God's adopted children. We must obey God as his children, for God loves us as his children. We need to walk in fellowship with him, for Jesus' prayer is that we will someday share in the glory that Jesus enjoys now. And Packer argues, actually, that this father-child relationship is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification itself, because he says of the richer relationship of God that it involves. So we see my first point, intimacy with God the Father. Now, my second point, trust in God the Father. Jesus entrusts himself to his Father. And in Psalm 31, verses 5 that we just read now, the word commit is the Hebrew word for pakad. It means to give something to another, to trust that they will care for it. And when we do this with our money uh, in our banks, we refer to this as a deposit, where we deposit our money and place our money in the bank for safekeeping. But that's the Hebrew word used here relates to counting. And in this context, we see that David is placing his trust and his reliance in God. David praises God for keeping him safe from all his enemies. He's not simply expressing confidence in God, but he's in placing his entire existence into the hands of God. Now, in our verse today, the meaning of the word entrust, or the other translations use commit, is very similar. For the corresponding Greek verb is paratithemi, meaning to entrust to someone for safekeeping, or to give over or to commend, particularly to trust or entrust someone to the care and protection of someone else. So as Jesus lets go of his life, he entrusts his eternal destiny to his Father's everlasting arms. 
and later in chapter 7 in the book of Acts, we observe something very similar to when Stephen was martyred. For when Stephen was being stoned to death because of his testimony in Jesus, what did he say? He earnestly cried out in prayer. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Acts chapter 7, verses 59. And having learned Jesus' statement and its significance, Stephen expressed a similar steadfast trust of the spirit being received, just as Jesus had at the time of crucifixion. You see, because Jesus is the only way to God the Father, Stephen trusted that Jesus would receive his spirit in heaven because of the Savior's willing sacrifice. But what exactly did Jesus entrust with the Father? Well, the text shows us his spirit. What Jesus committed into the hands was his spirit, which was at the point of separating from his body. For now the scriptures tell us that man is a tripartite being, a triune being because he is created in the image of God. For God said in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. And we know that God is a trinity, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Trinity is clearly set out in uh, the Apostle Paul's benediction as he closed his second Corinthian epistle. For we know the words well. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And Paul also tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the threefold nature of man can be illustrated in many, many different ways. But Dr. Larkin, in rightly dividing the word, gives us an example of three circles. He says the outer circle stands for the body of man, the middle circle for the soul of man, and the inner circle for the spirit. And he goes on to say, in the outer circle, the body is shown to be touching the material world through the five senses of sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. The body which we live in, all our ligaments, our bones, our joints, are perishable. And as Pastor Gareth said recently, the bad news is that each, each and every one of us one day will die. And Dr. Larkin says, the gates to the soul, which is the middle circle, are our imagination, our conscience, our memory, our reason, and our affections. And the inner circle being the spirit, which receives the impressions from the outward and material world through the soul. For the spiritual faculties of the spirit are faith, hope, reverence, prayer, and worship. And the spirit appears to be the highest part of our being. It is what separates us from the beasts that roam the earth. It's what links us to God, our Father. So when 
the, the word spirit is used in Scripture, it can have several meanings. So whenever we see the word spirit used in an uppercase S or a capital letter S, it has but one meaning. It is for the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune God. But when the word spirit is used with a small case or a lowercase s, it may have several different meanings. It can have a direct reference to the spirit of man, or it can indicate uh, an evil spirit such as the agent or the devil. But yeah, in the text before us, we see that Jesus' own human spirit returned to the presence of God the Father. He dismissed his human spirit freely into the divine care of his human or his loving father, leaving his bruised, battered body to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And only the death of Jesus, for he died a voluntary death. No one could take his life. How do we know this? Well, one of the most amazing things about Jesus' death was the timing. For as we have learned, the death of Jesus was unusually quick. Most of the victims of crucifixion hung for several days on the cross to die a slow, horrible death of hunger, of thirst, of dehydration, of insanity and infection in the blazing sun. But when Jesus knew the payment had been paid in full. He chose to give up his spirit. He was sovereign in his own death. He died like no other man. Jesus chose the timing of his death to the very minute on the cross. And A.W. Pink comments on the absolute uniqueness of our Savior. He says, two things were necessary in order to the making of propitiation. First, there to be complete satisfaction must be offered to God's outraged holiness and offended justice. And in this, in the case of our substitute, could only be by him suffering the outpoured wrath of God. And this had been born. Now there remained only the second thing, and that was for the Savior to taste death. So the Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this judgment. So A.W. Pink continues, with the sinner, it is death first, and then the judgment. But with the Savior, the order is of course reversed. He endured judgment of God against our sin, and then he died. So it is only the blood of Jesus that can satisfy the law and the righteousness of God. For no sinner can do that. In his victory, we see Jesus commits his all to his Father. This is what we would expect from a person who lived the way Jesus did. He had a perfect trust in his heavenly Father. So firstly, the intimacy with God the Father Secondly, trust with God the Father. And now, for my third and final point, we see surrender to God the Father. For when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, 
Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Having said this, he died. And other translations would say, he breathed his last. So finally, we see Jesus speaks a word of surrender. He gives up his human life to his father who has given it to him for 33 years. Jesus prays this final prayer because he knows the father and he knows that he will spend eternity with God the father. For as a devout Jew, he prayed these words as part of an evening prayer all of his life. And now at the end of his life, he prays these words one last time as he lets go of his human life in order to embrace the life that the Father has to offer him in his holy presence. And we know that through the Gospels, Jesus yielded to his Father throughout his ministry. For when his mother looked for him when he was but 12 years old, his response was, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house. After fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, the devil urged him to make bread out of stone. But Jesus responded, man shall not live by bread alone. And when the sisters of Lazarus sent for his presence because of the sickness of their brother, what was Jesus' response? He stayed two more days and he said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. It was not his affection towards Lazarus that moved him, but it was for the glory of God, his Father. So in all Jesus did, he poured out his heart in supplication to his Father. And we witnessed in Jesus' final hours before his arrest, on his face before God, he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. For as Jesus had lived, so he died, surrendering himself to his Father's will. Jesus exhibited absolute dependency on God, his Father, for he had complete and utter confidence in him. Our Savior committed his spirit into the hands of his father because it had been in his father's hands his entire life. So brothers and sisters, can this be said for you as well? Or as a sinner, have you surrendered yourself into the hands of God the Father? Or as a Christian, have you fully yielded yourself to God? Can you say with the Apostle Paul when he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12, he said, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Can you say that you have presented your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship in Romans chapter 12, verses 1. Are you living for the glory of the one who gave himself for you? Or are you living for yourself? Are you walking in daily dependence on him, knowing that you can do nothing without him? 
So we see what happened after Jesus died. For the text tells us that the Roman centurion who was in charge of the execution, he was a professional executor who probably had never had seen anything like this before. He watched how Jesus conducted himself in the midst of all hostility and hatred. For he testified, certainly this was an innocent man. Or some translation, this was a righteous man, the son of God. He must have been greatly impressed by the darkness, the earthquake, and certainly the manner in which Jesus suffered and died. Never had he heard a victim praying for his enemies. For this hardened Roman soldier must have been shocked when Jesus shouted and then died instantly. For the victims of crucifixion often lingered for days and did not even have the strength to speak. And the one commentator notes that the centurion began to glorify, or he kept on glorifying. He kept it up. The Roman centurion began to praise God, probably acknowledging the righteousness of God, and he continued to do this. And then what was the reaction of the crowds? Well, we see in verse 48, Luke describes the people slowly winding their way back to Jerusalem. They must have said, over and over again. We did this. We did this. How could we have been party to this? Returning to the city, we see that they began to beat their breasts in self-reproach. Another commentator says, they came to witness a show. They left with feelings of woe. They knew that they were guilty before God and that they deserved death. For the time of mourning and lament for the common people who were present. So let us just think about the application. What does this passage mean today for us? So there are three things that I would like to point out. So consider today what you think God is like or who is God to you? Do you see him as some old, gray, bearded man, some grandfather sitting high in the heavens, fast asleep, with no interests here in the events on the earth? Or do you consider him as the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in it, the author of life and the author of salvation, one who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent? But of course, for sure, as believers, God is all of these things to us. But do you know God as your Father? For Jesus knew Him as Father. Up until the cross, there had been unbroken and perfect communion between the Father and the Son. And yes, in those last three hours, God withdrew from the Savior because he could not bear to look at the sin that his son had became. But in the text today, we witness that this communion with the Father was restored, the fellowship never to be broken again. How wonderful is it to know that because of Jesus, we too can come to the foot of the cross 
and address God as Abba, Father? Can you truly place your hand on your heart and say that you know God as your Father? For to know him as your Father, like Jesus, you need to spend time with him, to spend time saturating yourself in his word, yeah, the Bible, coming to him in prayer and supplication, seeking his wisdom and his guidance daily, especially in times of great difficulty or temptation. Do you run to the Father as your first initial instinct, or do you try to figure it out as the world does? Do you know God as your Father here this morning? Secondly, who do you put your trust in? Do you live as the world lives, by trusting in yourself, by trusting in your own abilities or your talents? If you do so, you most likely operate independently of God. You most likely don't believe that you have got a problem, that you have got a sin problem, and therefore you are in no need of a savior. But the scriptures tell us, in that case, you are therefore an enemy of God. And when, you pay, and when you face judgment one day, you will face the penalty for your sin. For the wages of sin is death. But if you have responded to the gospel in faith and repentance, you are no longer an enemy of God. For Greg Gilbert, in what is the gospel, tells us that you are no longer an enemy of God, but you are an enemy against your sin. It is like you have flipped around. You put your trust in the saving grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus entrusted into his hand, his spirit, into the hands of his loving Father. And by entrusting his spirit to the Father, Jesus was entrusting his life beyond the physical death to God. He was trusting God to raise him from the dead and to give him a new resurrected body. And Stephen did the same thing towards Jesus when he prayed at the point of death, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So by becoming a Christian means that rather than trusting in yourself or any of your good works for eternal life with God, means that you trust in what Jesus dying on the cross as the just penalty for your sins. For if God holds our eternity, we know that it is secure. It is not because of anything that we have done. It is because it rests in God's hands. He has promised to guard it. And we can believe that, for he promised it to us. And finally, thirdly, consider who or what do you surrender to? Do you surrender to the world and its lustful pleasures and desires? Or perhaps idols rule your life? Do you choose to surrender to your Heavenly Father as Jesus did? For throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he surrendered to his Father. For Jesus said in John 5 verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, 
the Son does likewise. You see, by surrendering to the Father, we know that you seek to obey Him as Jesus obeyed Him, to obey His commands. So as a believer, can you come to God in prayer and say to Him, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Pastor Stephen Cole recalls a story of a young woman who was operated on for throat cancer. Her chance of survival was not great. At best, she would probably lose the ability to speak for the rest of her life. So the surgeon said, well, we're about to begin. So if you have anything else to say, please say it now. After a moment of reflection, she said in a calm and clear voice, Blessed be the name of Jesus. It is clear that this woman knew who God was. She trusted in God and she surrendered to him. So to die well, you must live and die trusting in God through Jesus Christ. All who die will fall into the hands of God the Father. But some will find this a terrifying experience because they have trusted in themselves. But to those who know him as Father and Jesus as Savior, those who trust to him and surrender to him will find comfort and welcome rest. So as you approach this holy week, this week, come to the foot, to the cross with reverence, to the foot of the cross with reverence. Cry out to God your Father. Trust in Him, surrender to Him, for your eternal destiny depends on it. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to thank You for Your Word that we have read today. Lord, we trust in Your Word. And Father, we just pray that we surrender our lives to You, that we trust you with everything we do and everything that we have. And Lord, may we approach you and say, Abba, Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. And Father, we ask this all through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.